what I'd like to do is sort of set up where we are in one part of a very critical and important discussion. And you're going to have to bear with me as I go back about 40, 50 years. Um, there was a major debate as we, we left the 1960s. Should the focus of political activity, should the focus of trying to build community center around opposition to the war in Vietnam, or should it focus on economic issues and in uniting Americans who were split, certainly on the war and certain other social issues, but had a common interest in terms of things like minimum wages, access to health insurance, certain federal programs in housing, in job development, the CETA program. And that debate was to sort of dissipate and disappear. Uh, probably because those solely focused on ending the war won part of the debate, and also because the war in Vietnam did end and ended leaving a huge schism in, in this country. I can remember sharing a thought with some friends in the... Uh, about 1966-67, saying that there were two tragedies to the war in Vietnam. One was the war itself and the death and destruction it was causing. And the second was the schism that it was creating in my generation, which was going to last for the rest of our lives. Little did I know that it would continue through subsequent generations, uh, through our children and grandchildren. Well, we've now got uh, a country that probably has not been as divided, uh, except for three other times in our history. Um, the Depression, the Civil War, and the nation's founding. But the division now is far more complicated and less simple than some of the issues then. But, as was the case in those three prior events, the American Revolution, the Civil War, and the Depression, much of it is steeped in economics and in the resentment that's created by those who have and those who don't have. One of the things that's come out of the last several decades is the notion which may seem illogical to some, 
that there are people who are exploited who will turn to those who have taken advantage of them in trying to end the, the crisis that they and their families and their towns and their communities find themselves. We're launching and have launched for the last several years a very aggressive program on racial equity, social justice, and inclusion. And as we're learning in parts of this country, whether we're looking at Louisiana or Wisconsin, their folks, usually white, who are saying, what the hell are you talking about in regards to these issues? What does it mean in your community in Madison is not a discussion we can have here in, in, in some other communities. We don't have the luxury of being politically uh, consistent in regards to sustainability and energy policy. You may be waging a battle over bicycles and public transit and supporting a walkable community but when you're in a county that, that is five, six, seven, eight hundred square miles and there's no public transportation and there's only 15,000 of us, your conversation is totally irrelevant. But in terms of our lives, what they're saying is very relevant because it has a profound impact in how decisions are made by the state legislature, by the governor, and, and by their own communities. Now, I want to just leave with one more thought. When I was first elected mayor in the 70s, I made the observation very shortly that there was nothing I could do that impacted the quality of life in this city that was as important as what was done in the school system. In other words, it was a realization that the most important thing for families, for households, in living their lives is what happened with their children and what happened in the schools. If you look throughout the state right now, whether it's a school district with 25,000 kids or a school district with 5,000 kids, that statement is just as true today for all of us. But then the question is, what are we doing to find a common ground for solving the challenges of funding education, making sure that our kids come out of school, and they not only have a quality education, but here's another contradiction for us in Madison. Are those graduates, when they go to the university,
going to stay here or are they going to return to the communities where they were raised? In fact, let me just ask for a show of hands. How many in this room graduated a high school with a population in this high school of, say, less than a thousand and are living here in Madison and Dane County now? Not an insignificant number. I, I won't quote Pogo on this one. Well, several books have been written about this in, in the last couple of years. And what, what you'll, you'll learn more in the introduction that, that Tori provides for, for, for Catherine Kramer's work. But I think what's real interesting is this. When the scholars, the authors set about doing their study and their research, they had no knowledge as to what was going to happen in the November 2016 election. The second thing is while we're going to get explanations as to why people have certain views and act upon them, I think you're going to be left, if you haven't already read uh, The Politics of Resentment, you're going to be left uh, after, after Catherine Kramer's done with the same dilemma uh, that I've got. Now, what do we do? How do we have the conversation? How, where we've got 50% of the kids in our public schools and households below the poverty line, do we form a connection with vast areas of the state with the same challenges? And the answer is going to be found within us. It's not going to be handed to us, I can tell you that much. So I'm really glad we're able to do this today. Uh, this was a, a real uh, important decision. And so now, uh, to get on with it, Tori is going to uh, tell us a little bit more about why we're gathered here today and, and introduce our speaker. Um, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who um, came out today for our open house. It was a great success. Um, I also want to thank Kathy for joining us. Um, it's our pleasure to have you as our first feature speaker for our Racial Equity and Social Justice Initiative. Um, so without any um, further ado, I'm going to introduce Kathy. Um, um, Kathy, Catherine Kane Kramer is the director of the Mortgage Center um, for Public Service and a professor of the Department of Public um, Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work focuses on the way people in the United States make sense of the politics and their place in it. She's known for her innovative approach to study of public opinion in which she invites herself into the conversation of groups of people to listen to the way they understand public affairs. Um, she is the author, the author of The Politic of Resentment, um, The Rural Consciousness and the Rise of Scott Walker. She is a white Wisconsinite 
who cares deeply about racial justice and openly recognize that she has much to learn. As part of um, the work um, that she's done, um, she served nine years on the City of Madison Equal Opportunities Commission and is the former member of the YWCA Madison Board of Directors. She continues to seek ways to pursue racial justice within her personal and professional spheres of influences. Her work on public opinions have uh, appeared in many venues, including the Washington Post, um, Vox.com, and US Today. She has spoken with journalists around the globe to share her insight and prides herself on speaking influentially with groups of people who are wanting to achieve justice and democracy all over. And um, I do not hold any more of her time. I would like to welcome um, Kathy Kramer. Thank you. I am so honored to be here. And Melissa, where did Melissa go? Well, Melissa Gumbar, Tori Petaway, thank you for inviting me to do this. It really is an honor. And like Tori said, I am a proud former member of the Equal Opportunities Commission. And um, it just, yes, it, I never would have thought I would be addressing uh, the RESGE celebration. I've just been a fan of this initiative since the get-go, and I'm just so impressed that the city has pursued this. And um, I know we have a long way to go, and it's really my honor to try and help with that effort. So what I'm going to do today is explain to you what I did, because it's helpful for understanding what I learned. I'll explain what I learned about resentment in our rural parts of Wisconsin, and then how it matters for our politics today, although it's become pretty self-evident, I know. And then I'm going to end up where Mayor Soglin said we all would, which is, what next? What do we do? I don't have the answers necessarily today, but I have the questions that I know uh, I'm chewing on, and I'm going to toss them out to you, share them all with you, and then hopefully this is the start of a longer conversation. So thank you so much again for having me. Um, to understand what I did, it's helpful to know that, I, yes, I study public opinion, but my approach to public opinion is not necessarily to ask, how can people be so stupid? Which is often the question, like why do people vote against their interests is sometimes the way it's put. But instead to ask, how do people understand the world? And how does that understanding of the world influence the way they think about politics and what they think about politics? And over the course of my career, I found that the best way to get at that, to understand how are people seeing, seeing the world, is to listen to them talk to one another the people that they know in the places that they normally hang out in. Because I get something different when it's just a one-on-one -on -one interview with me or when I invite people to come to campus and have a so-called focus group with me. It's different than when you go to where people live in the course of their everyday life and just listen. So rather than ask what are people getting wrong, I try and ask how are people understanding the world. And back in 2007, I had just earned tenure uh, you can probably hear it in my voice already. I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite, um, and I was dreaming up this study that would enable me to get at or study political understanding by getting out and about around the state of Wisconsin. At the time, I was really interested in social class identity, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to understand how social, I, social class identity matters for the way people interpret politic, politics, what I'm going to do is sample a bunch of communities across the state and then ask for a group of regulars in each of those communities where I could just sort of 
walk in and invite myself into conversations because I thought if I get a wide range of communities, I'm likely going to get a wide range of people with respect to social class background. So I carved up the state into a bunch of different regions and then sampled cities across the state um, just to give me a wide range of places, politically, economically, demographically, and these are the 27 places I ended up sampling. Um, I keep them relatively anonymous, but here's what I did. When I sampled a place, um, I called up either a local newspaper um, or a UW Extension office, and I said, where in such and such Wisconsin do people go on a regular basis to just hang out, to visit with one another? And these are the places they sent me to. A lot of times they were diners, sometimes McDonald's, cafes, a lot of times in our smaller communities, gas stations, which was new to me. But now you look around and you can see, you know, if they're serving coffee and there's anything remotely like a chair to sit on, people gather, especially in these smaller places where there isn't a diner even. There, there isn't a McDonald's for sure, right? And so what I did was to show up at, say, someone had said, okay, 5.30 every morning there's this group of folks in Joe's Gas and Sip, you know, walk in and they'll be there. So I drive up in my Volkswagen Jetta at the time and I'd uh, take a deep breath and I'd walk in and I'd say, hi, I'm Kathy from University of Wisconsin-Madison. Do you mind if I join you this morning? And they would laugh, as you very politely are not. And they'd say, sure, we got nothing better to do. You know, sit down. And we would talk. And I would give them um, my business card so they knew who I was. Um, and, you know, you can sit in my chair. Yeah, please, please, yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah. Um, my business card, a token of my appreciation, like a pen, a football schedule, pack of post-it notes, um, and, and then I explained, you know, these are, these are uh, paid for by the Alumni Association because people would ask me otherwise, are my taxpayer dollars going to this? I'm sure you've gotten <laughs> some of that, yeah. Um, and then I would just, I would turn on my recorder after saying, is it okay if I turn this on? It's just for me to transcribe. I'm not going to play it for anybody. Most times people were very fine with that. And then I would say, what are your big concerns? Tell me, what's going on around here these days? And then we would talk. And I had a few other focused questions. And as time went on, as I went you know, uh, back around to these groups, um, year after year, I would have different, slightly different questions that I was asking. But for the most part, I just tried to listen. And here's what I heard. About a year in, so I lived in Wisconsin pretty much my whole life, except for graduate school and a semester where I left college to go, I don't know, whatever, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, and I did not know that there was this like substantial, pervasive, intense resentment towards the cities in this state. I thought I was a small town Wisconsinite, but I grew up in Grafton, Wisconsin, which is technically 21 miles north of Milwaukee. Um, it's not a small town, right? And I didn't realize that until I started doing this work. But what I heard in our smaller communities was people telling me, look, there's basically Madison and Milwaukee, and then there's the rest of us. And sometimes you call us outstate, right? Well, here's a map of Wisconsin, just to remind us all. Um, Madison and Milwaukee, and they do take up a huge part of our own mental maps of what Wisconsin is, right? especially if you're living here, right? But there's a lot of other geography out there, and people out there knew 
that basically there's the M&Ms, Madison and Milwaukee, and then there's the rest of us. Their sense of what goes on in the state was that there's us and there's them, right? And there's, there are many layers to this. One part of it is that they perceive that all of the decisions that affect their lives are made in Madison or Milwaukee and communicated out to them and that there isn't listening going on in reverse. And there's, it's, so it's, more, it's partly about power, but it's also about where the stuff goes. So many times I heard this storyline of Madison pulls in all of our taxpayer dollars, spends them on itself or on Milwaukee, and we do not see that money in return. And there's another part to it, too. So it's about the power, it's about the money, but it's also about respect. People were telling me, look, those people making these decisions that affect our lives, they don't know us. They don't have experience in communities like this. And they actually don't even like us. They think we're uneducated, unsophisticated. They think we're racist, sexist, Islamophobic, homophobic. Those are my words. They wouldn't necessarily say those words. But what they were saying is like, you all don't even like us. So, yeah, let me give you an example in their own words because I can describe it to you, but there's nothing like hearing it in these conversations. So, here's a group of, um, yeah, here's a group of women in the far northwest corner of the state, and they get together once a week. And it's some, some women who are working, this is all white women, um, um, working, some retirees. And I'm um, asking them about their attitudes toward UW-Madison. And one teacher says to me, and I'll just, uh, I, all the names that I use I make up. Um, Teresa says, you know, as a former educator, I resented highly comments such as, there is no education north of Highway 8, which is an east-west highway that cuts across um, the middle of the state. Um, these kids aren't. We send them such absolutely excellent and well-prepared students there that they, the attitude that we are the hick area of the state, it was painful. And I said, so who did you get that from? From recruiters? And she said, from professors. And I said, really? When they would visit? Or she said, yeah, or publish in newspaper articles or other, you know. And that was a little distressful because I think northern Wisconsin feels a little far away from Madison anyway. And we keep waving our hands and saying, yoo-hoo, there's another half of the state up here. Up north is not Warsaw. Well, I don't know about you, but growing up in Grafton, when we went up north pretty, you know, at least once a year. And we'd get to Wausau, and we'd think, like, we're up north. The trees are different, you know. So, yeah, we do kind of think it's up north. Here's one more example. Um, again, I'm asking about UW-Madison. This is a different community. This is a group of people who meet once a week in the middle of the day in the basement of a church because there's no gas station even, so people drive in from various parts. Of it. So there's stay-at-home moms, retirees, uh, some farmers, some people working. It's a wide range of people. So I'm asking them about the UW. I say, what do you think the University of Wisconsin-Madison does not do well? When you think about it, Martha says, well, it represents our area. I mean, we're like, we're strange to Madison. So I ask about UW-Madison and just listen to what I get. It's like, there's this thing called Madison, right? represents our area. We're, we're, like, we're strange to Madison. They want us to do everything for Madison's laws and the way they do things, but we totally live differently than the city people live, so they need to think more rural instead of all this city area. We can't afford to educate our children like they can in the cities. Simple as that. We don't have the advantages. 
And Ethel says, all the things they do based on Madison and Milwaukee, never us. Martha says, yeah, we don't have the advantages that they give their local people there, I think, a lot of times. And it's probably because they don't understand how rural people live and what we deal with and our problems. This is back in 2007, just so you have a little bit of benchmark. So what I'm describing here is what I call, and this is very social science so forgive me, but rural consciousness. And basically what I mean by that is this identity as a small town or rural person combined with these kind of three different aspects of not getting my fair share, not getting what I deserve, which is both like the, the not getting enough attention and not getting enough resources and not getting enough respect. So this is what I mean by resentment. It's like there's many parts to it, um, and it's targeted at many different people, which I think is really important for the cause of racial justice because it's resentment towards cities and city people, but it's also resentment toward elites, white elites, urban elites, right, combined with resentment toward people of color, and it's all in this partisan context, right, where there's, there's been some significant sorting, right? So our cities, Democratic, our rural spaces, pretty Republican. And here's how I believe this has played out for our politics. It creates this really fertile ground for some pretty divisive messages. And by that I mean people are telling me when they're saying, I'm not getting my fair share, people like me are not getting my fair share, Oftentimes they're talking about deservingness and hard work. They're telling me that they think they deserve more, that they're working really hard, they're doing what they've been told they should do to get ahead, and they've seen previous generations do to get ahead, and yet they're not being able to make ends meet. And they perceive that what they deserve is going to people who don't deserve it, who don't work as hard as they do, right? And partly when they're saying that, they're invoking, you know, unfortunately, quite old racial stereotypes of who works hard and who's lazy, right? And they're also talking about public employees, I'm sorry, who, you know, we don't seem to be working very hard. We sit behind desks, right? We have pensions, health care. How is that fair? Here's another way that's fertile ground for divisive messages. Oftentimes, when people are telling me these stories about des deserving more, believing that they deserve more, they're looking back. This is kind of nostalgia, right, where they look around at their communities and they remember a thriving time when it was possible to have a really high quality of life right there in that place. And there's a significant sense of loss. People are wondering, where has that gone? And also part of it is, you know, for white folks, this sense of the world is changing. Where did it go? It used to be the case that as a white person, our status was sort of like kind of given, right? And now people perceiving like it's not necessarily the case that as a white person you're going to have what you need in order to get ahead. It's pretty disruptive for a lot of folks, right? And it creates a space for someone to walk in and say you're right to be pissed off. All right, last thing about government. Um, even though across the state, on average, there about 10% of the employees work for a government, whether it's local, county, state, federal, 
And yet there's a perception that government is an urban thing, so that government employees work according to decisions that have been made in urban spaces, in urban places. So I see this, I hear this a lot of times with public school teachers, members of the DNR, those are probably the two most prominent in that way, where you know, public school teachers can have been working in a community for decades and still they're seen as outsiders, right? Part of it is in many of these places, public school teachers are making salaries that are on average quite higher than the rest of the people in the population and they have health care and pensions, so there's some resentment that way too. But it's also this idea that the way you do your job has not been determined here, but it's been determined by people who don't know us and don't like us. So the final part of this is sometimes people will um, look around, will sort of say to me, will you just look around at this place? Whatever government is doing, it is not working for people like us. And so that creates a space, right, for someone to walk in and say, drain the swamp. All right, so I, as Mayor Soglin said, I did not anticipate the 2016 presidential election when I started this book, and I did not anticipate the 2010 gubernatorial election. And Governor Walker, um, Act 10, tapped into many of the sentiments, right? You can probably hear it now, how it's possible to make an argument that public employees are getting too much, roll it back, cut, them, cut it back. They should pay more into their health care and pensions, right? Because there's a huge part of the population that's saying it's not fair. Bring an end to it. It's not fair. They're getting more than they deserve, and I'm not getting what I deserve. Well, let's skip ahead to 2016, and here's how I see, or here in my mind, is how this all played out. Again, this rural consciousness, this rural resentment is really fertile ground for some pretty divisive messages, racially, ethnically, uh, with respect to a whole range of divisions that kind of are in, in existence already, right? And someone comes along and makes use of them. So birtherism, right? Talking about the President of the United States as not being one of us. Um, building a wall, trying to actually physically keep certain people out, um, draining the swamp. I already mentioned this one, right? The arguments in terms of rolling back government or just um, we need a massive change in government, right? We don't know what's at, on the other side of it, but just something different. We need something different. Even the whole lock her up thing, in a way, Hillary Clinton, such a foil to the Donald Trump campaign, right? This person who was intimately involved in D.C. government for a long time. Um, that, you know, played right into this whole argument about we need to just throw the whole thing out and start over. And finally, this worries about the status of, of white folks or working class white folks in general. In my mind, that slogan of making America great again tapped into that, right? People who were feeling like it used to be the case that people like me were guaranteed kind of a basic level of respect, a quality of life. I'm so sorry. You're, I'm making your faces so long. <laughs> um, but now let's talk, about, let's talk about what we do, or at least I'll share with you my own worries and my own thoughts. So I, you know, this has all been very bewildering to me in a way because, for one, 
Wisconsin, I mean, I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite, like I said, and Wisconsin in my mind until very recently was this place where people were pretty decent to one another. There's definitely ways in which that story is not true, but that was the storyline, especially me, white kid growing up in very white Grafton, Wisconsin, had going on in my head, right? Well, so this is all, you know, seeing what has happened to the level of political conversation in the state has been heartbreaking. Um, but also, uh, it, across the course of my adult life, I become more and more concerned in, in, about racial justice and involved in the racial justice community here in, in Madison. And so it's been a little bit of an odd experience for me to have this book about rural Wisconsin become kind of widely read and many people want me to come and talk about it because I'm not, I don't really see myself as speaking on behalf of rural Wisconsin. In my mind, I'm just, I, I'm a proponent of democracy and I am worried, like many people, about the ways in which we cannot talk to one another. We don't understand one another. And I, I throw that out there because um, I think often, sometimes when people hear what I have to say, what they hear is, okay, so the answer is we should focus, give some attention to white folks in rural areas. And what I, when I see, when they tell me that is kind of a body language of a turning away from some of the attention we've been giving to people of color, mainly in urban settings. And I say, no, please, do not interpret what I'm saying is that. Because that can't be the answer. It can't be the answer that we focus on one particular um, social group or not. The answer has to be we have to figure out how to do this thing called democracy together. And clearly, we're not very good at it right now. So here are my thoughts for how we can maybe get better at it. One thing is, everywhere we look, politics is described in zero-sum terms, right? Everything I've just described to you is about a mindset in which people are perceiving that whatever you're giving to them, you are taking away from me, right? It does not have to be that way. They're the opposite of, um, I, I should, I, actually, I want to throw the question out to you, what you all think is the opposite of zero-sum politics but then I'll give you my answer. My answer is government, which is a hugely unpopular answer these days, right? But if you think about all those things that we as a society have decided to invest in jointly and things that when we have them lift us all up, there are many of them, most of them are a function of government, right? Public schools, libraries, parks, clean air. I mean, all these things are common goods that we have needed. We have turned to government to help us figure out how to put those things in place. And I find that we don't talk about what government does for people enough. I mean, me, we like educators, maybe even people in government, but I don't find in my work um, at the Mortgage Center for Public Service, I find that when we talk about public service, oftentimes we're not even talking about government. We're not even reminding people what a noble calling it is to work for a government, right? Now, I'm not just saying that to be nice to you all. But, you know, that it's, it's a very important part of democracy to have governments that work and have people um, 
who are innovative and enthusiastic to want to work for a government. So bless you all. Um, but I think it's, it's really important for us to point out to people what government is doing for them every chance we get. Because we know just from, you know, recent social science that people don't notice. They don't know. So when we ask, you know, national samples of people, so have you been a recipient of a social welfare program? No, no, no. Not me, right? Well, have you received that deduction on your taxes for having a mortgage, mortgage, mortgage interest? Oh, sure, right. So when you actually remind people of all the different government programs they've been recipients of, 94% of the adult U.S. population has been a recipient of a government program, right? But that's not the way we talk about it. All right, so lifting up the common good. I also think bringing attention to the ways in which we are doing service to one another and the way in which we're valuing that as opposed to building up walls to keep each other out, what are we doing in our everyday life to actually, you know, connect with other people in our democracy and serve one another. And so that's another question I have for you all to think about is how how do we remind people that we are all in this together? Like and and as your work as public servants, um, what are the ways in which we can bring that to people's attention that, you know, serving public serving other people in the population is a very important thing. One thing I want to point out is that a variety of people in the room um, have been awesome partners with me and with the university through the Mortgage Center for Public Service. And if, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for that, because it, it gives great opportunities to UW students. But more importantly, it's a way to just raise up the idea of service to other people. It should be I think it should be a part of the college experience that people leave a campus thinking about how am I going to be a great citizen, right, in addition to how am I going to earn a living. And um, that's, I put the website up there because if any of you ever have ideas about how you want to connect with UW, even if it can't happen through the Mortgage Center for Public Service, I'll do whatever I can to link you up with someone on campus who would be helpful to you. I know it's kind of a black box. Sometimes it's hard to know where to start um, with an institution that size, but we're a nice front door, so you're welcome anytime. Finally, and probably most importantly for me, that in, in terms of what we do to help heal our democracy is listen. And I say that because um, to return to this question, you know, I don't believe that the solution to what I've just described to you is to turn away from people of color and now kind of take that attention and put it onto our rural areas, but instead to hear, as I'm sure many of you have, that what I heard in rural Wisconsin is identical in some ways to what we are hearing from people of color right here, right? Like, people don't pay attention to people like me. I'm not getting the resources I need for me and my family to thrive. And you know what? The people making decisions don't know me, don't understand me, and don't respect me. And I think the trick is to notice just how many people are saying that same thing across the country, right? And to figure out a way to bring that to people's attention. Because we are not each other's enemy unless we believe 
those storylines we're told that we are. And I think what I've learned from listening to these folks is, I'm not going to give the cliche of just how much we are alike, but just how much it matters to people when you take the time to go to them time and time again and say, no, I'm not here to sell you anything or to convince you anything. I'm not running for office. I just want to know what you think. So thank you. Thank you for your attention. It's really my honor to be here. I want to thank you for coming out and being with us this afternoon. We want to open up this part of um, the um, lecture for questions. Are there any questions for Kathy? Um, first, just thank you for your comments and your work. Um, I've seen you speak before, and I, I think that your work is probably some of the most important that's being done, not only for the state, but for the nation, um, given the n nature and the depth of the divisions in our country. Um, second, we're all obviously public servants, and we happen to work for one of those M&M cities. Um, do you have any suggestions that we could, either suggestions or questions that we could ponder as employees of this particular city? Because... You know, I, I can't go to Antigo and work or listen on behalf of the city. That's not my, my place. But is there a, a way that you think that we should think about this or questions that we could ask ourselves that would possibly have a way to reach beyond the 70-square-odd miles surrounded by reality that some people call this place that we call home? Yeah. Um, do you want, do you, should I speak back into that microphone, or does it matter? It doesn't matter. Okay, okay, okay. I... I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if just starting within the building is one way. I mean, I'm imagining just knowing, you know, um, many of my pals on campus live well outside of the city limits just for economic reasons. And I imagine that there are people who work in this building. I don't know. Anyone in this room who works, who works within the building? Okay. Who, you know... They have familiarity of what it's like to look in from the outside at the city and to just, you know, pull those people aside and say, how are you thinking about this? What do you, you know? And, and I think given that those people work right here, they know how the city government operates, they might have some great insights on how do we connect, what do we do, uh, how do we operate differently that might make us seem not as the other, but as a, you know, a really important part of helping people in other parts of the state thrive. That's where I would start. Over the weekend, I had a half-hour conversation with a friend who happens to live on the upper east side of upper west side of New York of, of Manhattan and we were discussing your book and a couple of others and he asked a question which I thought was very interesting and he said the University of Wisconsin has a, a very well respected department 
the Department of Rural Sociology. Have they been engaged in any of this discussion, and uh, have you had any discussions with them about your findings and where we go from here? Yeah, a bit. I mean, with individual scholars, like, we haven't, we're, yeah, it, those, you know, all of us who are scholars on campus, we're always a little stuck between to what, to what extent should we be scholars and what extent should we be advocates and create some kind of, you know, um, new initiative to help repeal the divide. And um, truth be told, I mean, in this context, there's a lot of wariness of doing anything that looks anything like political activism. Um, but so the conversation is kind of maybe it probably more for me than for them at an early stage because um, they're they're sort of new colleagues to me because I haven't really been studying rural areas in, until like well I guess it's almost a decade now so I don't have a great excuse but um, for not connecting with them but yeah no um, they're a great resource thank you I'm sorry if you told me this when I left the room, but um, I, uh, I'm glad you talked about race, and I'm just curious if uh, race came up in your conversations um, and just any thoughts sure. on their perspectives, because that's been a topic of our conversations in the city mm -hmm. and in Milwaukee. I'm uh, just wondering if that played a role. Yeah. It, yes and no. I mean, um, it kind of depended on where in the state I was when race came up. So... Um, and most of what I talked about today is just what I heard in the rural areas and the small community. So I'll just start there describing what it sounded like. Um, when it came up, uh, often it was about Native Americans in the nearby communities. Um, but that's not exclusively... Uh, when If it was about African Americans, for example, it was often kind of the distant other sort of fears of crime in the city, sort of, you know, what you might expect people get from the television or media, right? Latinos, and I mean, immigration, and Latino immigration in particular, has been really fascinating to me over the course of the past 10 years, because I, I don't think I described this, but when, so I finished my book in, in 2012, the work for my book in 2012, and I took a pause from doing field work but then when my book came out uh, almost a year ago, I went back around to many of these groups and the presidential election was ramping up. So I've been back to many of these groups in the past year. And when I first was out in the field in 2007, I asked people intentionally about immigration because from other work, I knew that that was likely to be a topic in which social class identity came up, which is what I thought I was focusing on at the time. And people often didn't have much to say about it. And I think in you know, in many of our um, many of our rural communities, I mean, when you're farther south, it's more likely that there is actually substantial Latino immigrant population in that community, right? But as I went farther north, I think people actually didn't have much interaction. But towards the southern part of the state, I think what was going on was you know people were acting as though the community was invisible or just, they, you know, didn't have experience with it. But over the course of the 10 years, especially since through the presidential campaign, people had a lot to say about immigration. And um, 
it was often pretty hostile, I have to say. Um, but that's kind of, that's a, I think that's a, that's a very brief way of answering your question, and, that, and I'm not really doing it justice because the most fascinating thing to, about, to me about race is how it's not just whether people mention it or not, right, but it's all the ways in which it comes up, it's like it's there in the conversation, even though people aren't saying like black people or immigrants or, you know, they're, um, when people are talking about who deserves what in this country, right, like race is a part of the conversation. When they're talking about deservingness and hard work, unfortunately, you know, for several hundred years, that conversation here has been about race. And when I think about how is it the case that the stories I hear out in rural Wisconsin from white folks and the stories we hear right here in Dane County from people of color are so much the same and yet they're, you know, they're, they're worlds apart. To me, that's race, right? That is, it's, it is useful um, for some interest for that to be in place, for that to be for people who have very, very similar worries and concerns to say to those other folks who might be their partners and trying to do something about it to say, oh, but uh, that's not me, right? So that's a long-winded way of saying it was everywhere and not, not um, explicit quite often. Thank you. I wonder if it's like, I mean, what I've learned from my pals here in the racial justice community is like that thing of staying in the conversation even when it's so painful and so hard, right? Like as a white person, you know, you, you like you want to be involved in racial justice and then you say something really just bad, right? And then you think, God, why do I put myself why do I do this? It's just so much easier just not to be my concern. Well, that's not your option. Like, if you actually are concerned about it, you got to go back in there and just be willing to take a risk and say something stupid again, right? And I wonder if it's the same thing with reaching out to rural communities. Like, it's not going to be easy. And you're, you're, we're going to encounter all kinds of discomfort. And But if it's really about searching for a more just society for everybody that it's going to be risky and and we have to stick with it so easy for me to say you know i mean uh, i it's it's different for me being a white madisonian with my accent to go into rural wisconsin and say no i'm really interested in what you think than being african-american and showing up cold calling i it's hard thank you um Two questions. Sure. One of the questions is, what were your criteria for choosing the communities that you went to? And secondly, what did the people you talked to have to say about their own local governments? Okay, sure. So the way I chose the communities was I had um, maps of different industries and political leanings and demographic groups, population density, um, type of agriculture. And I laid them out on my floor with a county map of Wisconsin. And I looked across them and I decided, okay, there's basically about eight different regions in this state, kind of like clusters of three or four-ish counties that kind of go together. So 
you know, some of them are kind of obvious, like Fox Valley, right, or the Milwaukee metro region. And then in each of those places, I listed out all the municipalities, and if there was a, a like a clearly the large city in that part of the state, I sampled that. So I, I took a like a, a large place municipality in each of those eight different regions, and then from um, the smaller communities, I sampled one, and then I had 16 communities, and then I sampled. I looked at the types of places that those were, and then um, I sampled for. Uh, uh, an additional nine to give me a broader range of places. So it wasn't really criteria. I just sort of tried to, I, I tried to get a, a wide variety of places um, spread throughout the state. Does that help? And then and the local government question. Um, it, it varied depending on where I was and sort of who I was talking to. And so sometimes uh, I'm thinking of a, a group in the far northwest corner, um, a group of women who meet once a week, and they, uh, one of the women was um, married to someone who served on the local municipal governing body, and um, she was an ardent defender of local government and talked on and on about how much good the local government was doing and how important it was to serve um, in, in elected office, and that's kind of one extreme. Another extreme would be, and this happened more than once, um, maybe three times, uh, a group of folks um, grousing to me about government for several years, and then one of them says, yeah, and as a member of the county board, I... Da, 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 da. So uh, I don't know what the, the overall takeaway is, but in general, it seems to me people didn't have a lot of positive things to say. And often, um, in, I should say, in this past year, I've been asking people intentionally about whether they think local, like municipal and county government, um, is a place where if they got involved, they could actually make a difference in their lives. They've been telling me all their complaints about state and federal government for years, so how about local? And mainly what I'm getting is people look at me quite bewildered as if, I don't really even know what that is. And one woman just a, about a month ago said to me, that's really not something that we hear about. Yeah. So I think, you know, when maybe when you get outside of a larger metro area, people actually, they're not getting a lot of information about their local governments. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I don't know. It's a, it's a very important question, and I hope to learn more. So thank you. Thanks again for coming speech. Um, as you've outlined uh, the uh, tactic, I'll say, of pitting uh, one group, the urban, against the rural, um, are there other platforms besides the one-on-one -on -one kind of conversations that we can have where we can uh, elevate that conversation, <clears throat> elevate the uh, conversation of trying to unify mm -hmm. uh, groups that are, both experiencing uh, negative effects and negative outcomes, or are we, you know, just looking at those one-on-one -on -one conversations? Is there some, are there other forums that we can look at to really try and leverage that conversation? Great question. Well, I wonder, for your work, I'm assuming there's professional associations that there are people from all across the state involved in, right? And I, 
I don't know what those meanings look like, but I can just know what the meanings in my life look like. I'm guessing that there's not a whole lot of, like, let's do this as human beings built in, right? Like, is there any way of building in, let's just spend some time with each other as human beings, as opposed to people who are supposed to come together and talk about this thing and then go, right? I don't know what that would look like, but something enjoyable to engage in together built in. Um, I wonder, too, especially with um, people from throughout the state come to Madison for high school athletic events, right? And partly they're just a pain in the rear in terms of parking, at least on campus. I don't know about you all. But I think there are these opportunities to reach out to people from other parts of the state at a time when they're like it's super important to people right they're celebratory they're all excited they're proud that their kid or their school made it into the playoffs and i don't know how you tap into that but i wonder like i don't know is there a way to roll out the red carpet to say we are glad you're here and look at how fabulous we are you know um I don't know, easier said than done. Sounds like it costs a lot of money just as I say that. But um, I think it, probably the best thing to do is think about when, when in my life, either professional or personal life, do I interact with people in other parts of the state and think about how could that be done differently that would make it more human, you know? And I, there's probably, I, I'm trying to think just in my own life, there's, yeah, there's probably things that I've never thought of that I could do as well. But I think it's a great question to ask. Like beyond the one-on-one, there's probably things that are already in place that if we did them differently, the outcome would be better. Hey, Kevin. Hi. Nice Hi. to see you. We're meeting Wednesday. Oh, good. Yeah. Great. Uh, Tom Muscular. So I, um, I'm doing work for the city now, but I also farm by Blanchardville and down there. I just came in from the farm. So I bridge that culture all the time. So I hear that back and forth, right? Um, I was out at a garage the other day, and a guy rolled out who I really like, and he says, you know, we've got to figure out how to get guns in the, into teachers' hands here. You know, and I'm so perfect opportunity to have a conversation, right, about how did you come to that kind of observation, you know. So we went over to the bar and we talked, you know. But my point, I wanted to check with you, does the UW have any strategy for trying to get out of here and back out there? I mean, for so many years, the Wisconsin idea was taken out through extension and systematically. Right? And it yeah. was loved and cared for. And I just wonder if we've got a strategy, given what's going on, because you're taking hits right now. Yeah. Well, I'm not privy to the, the top-tier decision-making, but what I know is that there, there are many people on campus who do work in other parts of the state, and they're all kind of doing the best they can on their own, right? But strategy is a key word there. Um, and uh, I'm not sure. 
So, I guess I was wondering, um, are there any of the rural areas you went to that were maybe not quite as resentful? And if so, which I'm kind of cringing <laughs> about, but if so, I guess, what was it about those areas that maybe stood yeah. apart? Um, yes, and they tended to be... Um, A community that had figured out a way. This is strange. This is not strange. You'll see. You'll see why I'm pausing. They tend to be communities that figure out a way to draw in um, long-term residents from urban areas. So um, I can't name the community specifically, but they tended to be um, maybe like thriving with respect to organic agriculture, or so, so kind of beyond the tourist communities. I mean, there are many places in the state where people from urban areas go, right? But these were places where people from urban areas had decided to settle, like to raise a family. They actually move there year-round. Um, that's telling in a way, isn't it? I mean, in terms of uh, what what is economically viable in a lot of these places. Um, I'm sprinting to think of other places, that, um, but that's really what comes to mind. After three, and um, keeping with time, we want to be respectful of um, Kathy's time. And so just closing out our um, open house and our event, I just want to remind everyone, and thank you again, um, that we have some takeaway questions um, for you. Um, on April 17th, um, we provided a handout what we would like to be able to do is um, have each of you take one of these away with you as some um, food for thought. Um, at our next core team meeting, we have core team every third Monday of the month. And this is just another way, Kathy, um, help us craft some questions that you can think about um, based on her book and her work. Um, and if you want to continue to continue this conversation, this is some questions that you can think about. You can come back to our next open house, um, not open house, but our core team meeting on April 17th, and we can continue this conversation. Um, but I do want to thank you, and as you're walking out, if you did not sign in um, when you came um, at noon or when you dropped in, please do so as you're walking out. And once again, can we please give Kathy a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>